Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hey, welcome to Radiotherapy for the last show of the year, indeed the last show of the decade. How are you doing, Dr. Sharma? Doing uh, good. It's the it's the busy, silly season. Uh, the, the the medical work is uh, quieting down. People tend to not get sick when it's uh, when it's a bit warmer and it's nice and really you do have, a few things. You're actually noticing something. Uh... There's a bit of a decrease here. Uh, I, I I think so. Uh, yeah, people just in a bit of mood, I think, and just uh, everything's good at this time of year. Not so good for well, good for my other career, as you know. Uh, performing uh, uh, magic and mentalism uh, on stage. And so it's a very busy period for that. But it's very relevant because I was doing a, a show for Skepticon, the National Skeptics Convention, and I was just interested to see if we'd got any listeners to our show there. Uh, surprising, uh, surprisingly large representation in really? that little community of uh, radiotherapy listeners, yeah. How about that? I know, I was and, very happy. And, uh, so they were putting a name to a face, were they? Yes, finally. Yeah, Good they stuff. know what this guy looked like. <laughs> here we are. Are you doing lots of uh, Christmas parties? A lot of those, a lot of corporate functions. So there's no shortage of that work at this time of year, and then it all just stops in January. How much does your medical practice uh, um, influence your um, performing arts? Well, uh, the the great thing about a general practice is it's just you know thirty conversations with with people every different people from all different walks of life. So I think it makes you very personable when you need to be. So you can kind of turn that on. You can learn the skills of how to relate to someone very quickly. Uh, so yeah, huge benefits uh, as far as performing goes, and vice versa too. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Hey, we've got a uh, a big show. As I said. Uh at the top, not just the last show of the year, but the last show of the decade. The decade. We have the honour. <laughs> yes. Yes. Two years in a row now. We did last year at the last show. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. We'll pull it off. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. So, Dr. Sharma, I was taking a look at the uh, some of the stats of the last 10 years just to see if anything had shifted um, in health and medicine uh, uh, in that regard. So, what a place to start. Of course, I started with causes of death. Great start. <laughs> Great start to the show. <laughs> Great start. So, uh, it's a big end with, with, ways, with the big but... question, have the causes of death death and mortality changed over the last 10 years before i reel it off unless you've uh, already uh, had a cheap look i have not so i knew you were doing the spade work and i wanted to, to, to see if, if it aligns with my intuitions i suppose what do you reckon uh, were the top three or four uh 10 years ago and what do you reckon the top three or four okay if i had to guess okay firstly i don't think i would have guessed it would have changed but by your tone i'm guessing they have changed so i'm going to guess it's changed probably from cardiovascular disease to maybe maybe just edged out by by cancer maybe oh, you know what there hasn't been that much change ah okay yeah yeah so the same four causes in 2009 are the same four now there's mm -hmm. just been a slight shift in order number one still heart disease okay 
All right. Um, and But uh, two, three, and four have shifted around. Number two is dementia, including Alzheimer's now. Oh. Yeah, where um, it was third back in 2009. Um, so concurrent with people living a little bit longer, even in the last 10 years, um, uh, it's jumped up to number two. Mm. Um uh, cerebrovascular diseases, which, you know, an all-encompassing category, um, mm. that was number two in 2009, mm. um, number three now. And um, ma- malignant neoplasms of uh, trachea, bronchus and lung um, was number four. Interesting. Yeah. It is interesting to see that uh, that slight rise in Alzheimer's. I th- Maybe not so much in the last 10 years, but I suppose for preceding decades, it's probably just been under-recognised, really. You often look at people and, you know, you're, you're, who, say someone's 90 years old in a nursing home and, well, well, they had a pneumonia and they died, so is the cause of death pneumonia? And the answer is actually not really. That's just the last domino to topple. What really started this off was the, the dementia that actually yeah. you know, stopped your, your bodily control and coordination to full functions. Yeah. What's interesting, even though that order hasn't changed, within those statistics, though, there has been some interesting shift. Uh-huh. So even though um, heart disease is still number one, it's actually been a decrease of 22% in number of deaths. Interesting. So it's still the biggest but it's declining really dramatically. Very interesting. Um, and the average, age, uh, the median, I, I beg your pardon, not the me- average, the median age um, is 85. So it's still quite old. Mm. You know, it's still, you know, that's that's a significant Absolutely, lifespan. Absolutely, yeah, 85 is incredible when you look at the course of human history. It's yep. Um, but uh, dementia, including Alzheimer's, uh, still second um, uh, leading cause of death. But it's Increased by sixty nine percent over the last ten years. Yes, sixty nine percent. So the number, so it's still holding the rank, but the number is dramatically. So if we want the raw figures, back in two thousand and nine, it was just eight thousand two hundred. Well, just I and mean, it's still yeah, significant. Sure. Um, but uh, the latest figure is just shy of fourteen thousand. See. I reckon that part of it is the increased recognition of its role there. Right. Um, I mean, unless, oh my God, you know, we're suggesting some kind of epidemic here of Alzheimer's, which I think is quite unlikely. Um, but yeah, and the good thing is a lot of attention is now going towards this. And again, it's not just about the deaths. It's just the, the way those last few years tend to, to, to go down with, with Alzheimer's. Um, you know, we're looking at that list. You know, every, we've all got to go. Yeah. Uh, the, the question is, is is kind of how, I suppose. Well, and the longer we live, the more likely it is our brain's going to start doing things. Exactly. So yeah. we're almost victims of our own success with yeah. healthcare sometimes. Yeah. Um, other notable trends over the last 10 um the top five leading causes of death now account for more than one third of all deaths. Hmm. So um, that's that's really significant. So if if you're thinking of public policy and budget allocation, then the more that goes to that, the more Im- you know. Impact if you, we're going to use that yeah. word impact. rather than chasing down outliers and being disproportionate with our attention and funding. Yep, yep. Really interesting is in regard to influenza. Oh boy! Yep. So it's it's in ranking terms, just the twelfth leading cause of death. That's still pretty significant. Okay, that, that's huge. Yeah. For for something that we all casually speak about, oh, I had the flu. Oh, I, I had the flu. Flu every year. Yeah. That, that's massive. But um, uh, 
so and, and so they're linking that um, positioning with the um, the strength of the and severity mm. of the of the flu season. This has been an epically bad year. Yeah, uh, it's been quite literally off the charts. We've had to extend the y-axis in terms of the number of cases in Victoria, anyway. Yeah. Um, and on a more sober note, um, given that in that top twenty list of deaths, um, most uh, the overwhelming majority of the ages of of mortality is you know above certainly into the 70s and 80s um the standout of course is in, is self-harm hmm. which is is ranking at uh, 14th hmm. um and uh it's it's median age is 44 hmm. so obviously there's the extremes we know about the rate of uh, youth self-harm and suicide hmm. um and we know about aged so um so we can imagine i don't have the breakdown there but the extremes probably uh tell a different story than just looking at the median no for sure and uh i mean it was very sobering uh to to see and know that from the ages of roughly i think 18 to all the way to about roughly 45 the leading cause is uh is suicide and self-harm yeah yeah yeah, we'll talk maybe um, about uh, one of the Royal Commissions in that regard in a moment. Just while we're still on the stats, though, um, we looked at um, uh, behaviour um, in Australia over the last 10 years. Smoking, gone up or down, do you reckon? I reckon smoking, mm, 10 years, gone down. Gone down, indeed. So 10 years ago, 19% uh, were daily smokers, mm. now down to 14 Do you know what I love about that metric is that you can... Discover the kind of health bubble you live in by knowing what percentage of your friends smoke. Yep. And I, I realise what a bubble I'm in. I can maybe think of one, two people I know yep. who smoke. I was at a Christmas party on on Friday, um, an afternoon Christmas party outdoors. Um, no, wasn't a place where there was um, application of smoking um, regulations, right? You right. Know, so if somebody wanted to smoke, they could. They could. Nobody. No, Amazing, right? Nobody was smoking. Um, nice change. Yeah, great really change. Good. It's yeah. a real win for regulation. Uh, you know, plain packaging is something is, that went down this last decade, yeah. which has massive yeah. impact. What about drinking? Daily Ooh, drinking. Daily drinking. Oh, I'm going to say mm, marginally down. Yeah, yeah. So it went from 21% down to 16%. Mm, mm. Yeah, we've spoken on the program a few times uh, during the year. And I noticed that from the students I teach at undergraduate level, you know, they just aren't drinking like I remember undergraduate mm. drinking. So at least that cohort is going down. It's fantastic. And in fact, one of the the great things we know about alcohol-related harms is the later we can have that onset of you know, kind of first drink, uh, the the less harms that, that accumulate totally. Well, that's Those it. First yeah. few years are so formative. Drinking's not just about your liver or your um, mental health. It, you know, accidents, the um, the whole shebang. Oh, it, it, so many the conversations and decisions. And yeah, does, <laughs> so much. <laughs> yes. Um, what about um, fruit and veg? What about veggies? Um, so I got mm. myself a stat over the last 10 years on people who were having an inadequate number of um, uh, quantity of vegetables. Okay, this is a tough one. So I, I reckon prices have gone up and yet the, the wellness, you know, healthy natural eating movement's been up. Ooh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say up. You know what? This caught me completely by surprise. So we're uh-huh. talking about the percentage of Australians over 18. Um, there weren't 10-year stats for under 18. Um, they've just 
Okay. So this is just over 18 Australians daily. Um, what percentage have an inadequate? Inadequate. Oh, okay. Um, I guess well, I'll make my prediction. Uh, so I, I reckon that the, the percentage of people with inadequate intake, I think it's gone down marginally. It, what do you reckon? It has gone down. But you know what? Mm-hmm. In 2009, 93% of us had weren't getting enough veggies. Okay. 93% That's weren't. That's well, You know, our five, you know, yeah. five a day. Um, it's only down to 92 now. Oh. That's huge. Wow. That's huge. So we're talking about daily. Yeah. Daily intake. So about 90%, 92% of us aren't having our five a day. Jeez. Did you have your five a day yesterday? I'm vegetarian. I don't think I have my five. I definitely did not have my five yesterday. Oh, my God. I don't want to discuss what I ate it's, yesterday. It's, it's, it's a bit confronting when you really do think about it on a daily basis, mm. right? You know, and, and obviously the, the nutrition that comes from vegetables is something that accumulates. You don't just have it one day and that, you don't store it in your body for much longer than, mm. you know, mm. one cycle. Um, so what about fruit? Inadequate consumption of fruit 10 years ago to now. Down? So this is I the know. two a day. Yeah. So back uh, 10 years ago, it was 52% inadequate. Okay. So a bit better than veggies. Yeah, much better than veggies. Um, I wonder if that's like smoothie includes um, consumption. Maybe. I suppose or whatever. You, you hope it doesn't include like apple juice or something. Yeah, that's right. Sugar. Um, but it's only down to 49. Hmm. So we're not our, our nutrition. I know we're going to talk about nutrition yeah. later on the show, but that's not impressive figures, is it? It's a funny thing because so much of the talk about health is, is to do with nutrition. So you'd think that it'd be... Kind of bigger changes there, but sounds like there haven't been. No. I guess I guess part of the issue is that changes are occurring in all directions. I mean, we've got a big legitimate movement of the, you know, carnivores, mm. the carnivore diet, actually rejecting <laughs> fruit and vegetables. Yes. Um, it's it's a wild, wild world yeah. when it comes to, to nutrition, nutrition these last ten years. Yep, yep. I've got more to say about that, I'm sure. Um, what about ex- exercise and activity? What percentage ten years ago? of people were getting insufficient exercise. So it's basically for the last 10 years, it's been around about the 30 minutes a day. Sure. Um, what percentage weren't getting their 30 minutes, do you reckon? Oh, you're going to make me say number. I oh, am. Oh, boy. You. Well, Australia's quite an active country, but, you know, most people live in metropolitan areas and you know, I know what life is like. I reckon only, I reckon maybe oh, 30 to 40% were getting adequate exercise. Yeah, good on you. Good on you. Okay, so the figure I've got is insufficient, but we can flip it. So about 67% mm. in 2009 mm. weren't getting their 30 a day. Um, and now it's uh, 55 so that's, okay. that's that's a nice shift. That that's pretty good. Mm. I'm quite happy about that. Yep. Still a lot of like it's great news on the smoking drinking front, but uh, on the on the nutrition front, oh, long way to go, huh? And it's a really tough battle. Um, there's so much you know, misinformation. There's so much genuine confusion about what's right and wrong. But yeah, I, I, in the last couple of years, I've seen some very helpful pieces of knowledge accumulate. Uh, yeah. In terms of the scientific evidence, that I think it's going to hopefully guide us through the next yeah, ten years. Yeah, I hope you're well. right. And just one last um, stat uh, from the from the last ten years regarding our national health budget. Mm. Um, so it's now at uh, 185 billion. So it's our biggest um, public uh, expenditure. Um, but it's been decreasing every year since uh, 2010. And it's now down, if you want to sort of like make it more personal, it works out to about $7,500 per Australian mm. per year. Mm. Um, and that, that covers everything from infrastructure, 
um, to medical research, the whole shebang. So hospitals, clinics, training, um, the whole lot. It's not a lot. And and if it's the trend is going down, um, that's got to be a little bit of an alarm. That's right. Do you think those uh, figures include the amount that, say, Australians spend on private health cover as well? Or? No, this is, this is government oh, expenditure. Boy. This is I mean, just government expenditure. Yeah, I mean, what do you do there? If, if that's going down and private health is uh, already this downward spiralling vortex, uh, it's a bit of a worrying trend. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Let's uh, kick off a bit of a discussion about the last 10 years in uh, news items and developments, Dr. Sharma. Um, we've got down on our list a whole lot of things. There's so much. It, it, when we look at it in list terms, um, no shortage of developments. No, in fact, if anything, I, I'm sure we've missed some big ones. No doubt. So no doubt. in no particular order. <laughs> in no we'll... particular order. Um, we both had on our list the rise of non-expert opinion. Oh boy! Oh, this has been the bane of my existence, no doubt. From from Doctor Google to 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 Goop by Gwyneth Paltrow to Paleo Pete. So yeah. So what you know on your in your daily practice? How often would a would a, a patient come in and say, "I heard such and such say this or that," um, and your first job is to you know, manage the information they've received mm. via celebrity. So put it this way, I think patients are, are quite smart. They know that I know about this and doctors know about this. So often they're not overt with this. But you can tell, they often patients bring an unusual level of knowledge and familiarity with the topic, whether it's correct or not is a different mm-hmm. issue. I would say... At I would say at least half my patients have done some internet pre-reading yeah. before coming to see me. That's my estimate. And there must be a, a level of frustration around that, right? Because potentially this is a great thing Absolutely. that people have access to information, right? Absolutely. So um, if somebody can come with some kind of literacy, uh, they turn up in your clinic and they're able to describe their symptoms in a particular kind of language and you're able to ask questions in a particular kind of language and perhaps cut to the chase. That's the upside, right? In fact, Yeah, in fact, I'm actually, generally speaking, fairly optimistic about it. I, I think it, patients get it right a lot of the time. The problem is that when, the, when patients get it wrong, they're often so entrenched in that view that it's very difficult for me to, to dig them out of that hole. Yeah. Um, and you know, the dangers are just so... So perverse, I suppose. Is there an area that is, um, uh, you know, that you might say is is particularly strong that people are, are good at, and there's a particularly weak? So we would spoke about nutrition a moment ago, or people coming in to talk about nutrition mm. um, with more, uh, you know, a bit more articulate with that. Correct. Yeah. To other nutrition, I, I'd say it's it, it's a bit even, Stevens, in terms of you know good versus bad information, but on the whole. Way better, I think, than it would have been, say, 20 years ago. Yeah, right. Uh, so in that way, it's probably been a mild win. Yes, there's a fair bit of disinformation out there, but probably the big problem has been the anti-vaccination movement. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that is, that's a community that just thrives uh, through the internet, uh, and that's just been so, yeah, so, so right. difficult to counteract. Because if, yeah, if we, you know... If you go onto the internet with confirmation bias, you can find somebody to reassure you that you're right, aren't you? Absolutely. So if you decide 
to take a particular position on vaccinations, for example, um, you can find support for that, can't and, you? And the thing is, you might not even consciously be trying to do that. The issue is that the search engines uh, will will find you certain sets of results and Facebook will will try and find mm. you the kind of articles you want to read. And, and uh, the algorithms uh, are the ones that... that I guess, fostered this confirmation bias. And before you know it, you've, you've become entrenched in your views because you've been exposed to the same thing 20 times and that's yeah. that. Are people coming into the clinic asking um, about or being able to talk to you about their mental health uh, with a with a with an informed vocabulary? They're able to distinguish between stress and anxiety and depression and these sorts of things? I think that's something that's improved vastly in the last 10 years. And, uh, of course, them being able to access good literature online has helped. But just generally, I think, in the, in the community, through our culture, there's been more of an acceptance of being able to talk about these things. And this is, I think, somewhere where celebrities have been quite good. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, sports people and, and actors have been able to, to talk about these things, talk about these kind of dark periods of their lives and... Geez, you know, if they're getting going through it, well, you know, I'm, you know, I guess I'm not immune either. I think yeah. is is what a lot of people tell themselves. So, you know, celebrities as uh, you know, in the health domain have not totally, completely been a bad thing at all. So, speaking about celebrities, you've lined up a bit of a, a clip for us. You want to set us up? Oh boy. Uh, actress Gwyneth Paltrow uh, decided uh, just dominating in the field of acting was not enough. She decided to to descend onto the uh, into the arena of healthcare and uh, and t- take on the the medical history industry with her own uh, own agendas. So you, you've got she's describing something here that that is actually she dis- uh, that was mentioned in her newsletter and an interview pulled her up on this and said, "Hey, what's this earthing thing that your newsletter is talking about?" This is her little description. I don't actually know that much about earthing, and it came out of me not knowing anything about earthing, but hearing about it. It's kind of, they say that we've lost touch with sort of being barefoot in the earth and that there's some type of electromagnetic thing that we're missing. And that is so true. it's good to take your shoes off and walk in the grass. Okay. I don't know what the <laughs> f- we talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Gwyneth Paltrow, health expert. Um, she was laughing by the end of it. She knows it's crazy. She's going on there. And, well, she's been in the news this week again. Her, her, her organisation called Goop, right, is going strength to strength, right? Um, it's been around for a while now. And, and she was the butt of a lot of jokes. And that organisation was the butt of a lot of jokes. But clearly there's a market for it. Absolutely. I mean, this is part of the issue is that uh, anyone who is informed on this, you know, we're all just kind of joking about it, but we don't have access to everyone else on the other side who sees this as legitimate, who get the newsletters and they get, you know, their Facebook feed is completely different to mine and their Twitter feed is completely different to mine. And you've, they're completely actually insulated mm. from a lot of this kind of criticism. And I think as those little interviews prove, she has no idea and is actually surprisingly callous about it um she can laugh about it because she she doesn't doesn't matter like yeah yeah no consequences yeah yeah um good one let's take a look at something else um we were touching on um uh, nutrition before there's been a bit of a shift in recent times around what is good and bad food right so and most notably carbs and fat We've both noticed that people are talking about that in different different ways. So carbs used to be good, right? It used mm, to be energy, that energy. You know, right at so the bottom of the food pyramid. Remember yeah, that thing? Remember carb loading? Oh man, carb those are good just, days. 
Um, now carbs kind of the enemy and and fat has uh, become well you know there's still a distinguishing totally. between good and bad fat but um, fat you know through things like nuts and avocados and 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 um, some oils and so on um, is seen as the good thing and that in turn has given rise to things around we've seen paleo mm-hmm. and probably not at its peak any longer no but, I, th- I think but, it's kind of passed but now totally superseded by say keto keto diet let's talk about the keto diet do you want to just give a pricey Look, I'm actually not going to speak too specifically about the keto diet because I think there's a meta thing going on. So, I mean, keto is one big movement. Another big movement that's actually not got to do with the foods you're eating specifically is, say, intermittent fasting is, is another one going on. I think the, the carnival movement in and of itself is, is kind of doing its own thing. The, the meta level that I'm looking at it at is that a lot of the foundations of nutritional science have been shaken up. A lot of the studies couldn't be replicated. And a lot of these other kind of diets have come about and... The funny thing is, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence they work, but within the last couple of years, we've done some good quality research, and it seems like things like keto or low-fat or just pure calorie restriction uh, or low-carb all work. Yeah. They all work. Which one's better, which one's worse? There's a little bit of a difference. Not that much. And I think that's probably the only good news to come out of this is there's probably different ways we can all go about trying right. to help achieve some kind of Still, healthy balance. So maybe distracting us from thinking that there is such a thing as a silver bullet and trying to find something that works for your particular um, makeup. Exactly. And yeah, the idea or of the one being the best, the most superior is obviously the biggest marketing tool that a lot of these uh, these diet manufacturers or you know inventors have. Uh, whereas it seems like the truth is anything but. But I guess it, in the kind of kerfuffle and confusion of a lot of these uh, you know old quote-unquote facts about, you know, carbs being good, fats being bad, it's just being controverted. There's been this adjustment period of like, well, anyone can kind of have a say. You know, the the doctors or you know, the establishment got it wrong before, well, that means I can have a go too, whereas it's kind of like, well, no, not quite, where science is slowly but surely itching away and getting asymptotically closer to the truth. There's still something to distinguish between um, nutrition advice that's around weight loss specifically and nutrition advice that's around lifestyle. Right, and I think that's an important distinction between keto and time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. Right, so keto, where you get a um, overwhelming proportion of your nutrients from fat, mm. um, and keep carbs as low as possible, you know, under thirty percent um, or whatever, um, so that your body starts to burn fat for energy, um, which um, seems to have um, and peer-reviewed research and and so on to the extent that it's been done um, seems to be pointing to that as a as a weight loss program Hmm. but people are critical of it if people if if people are choosing to treat it as a lifestyle diet Hmm. on the other hand the time restricted eating and intermittent fasting um, is you know people go out of their way to tell you it's not a diet as in a weight loss diet Hmm. there there can be consequences that you lose weight Hmm. by doing it but that's simply because you're not eating as often uh, during the day, you're you're getting your calories within a particular window, quote unquote, part of the language there. So you've got an eating window of maybe eight hours, four hours, or just one meal a day. Um, and um, as a consequence, you just can't eat as much as you normally would. So that's how you do your calorie management. It's not actually that you change what you're necessarily eating. And people are saying that, um, well, that that can be a lifestyle choice. You just make sure that. You know, you you take at least sixteen hours a day out of your twenty four where you're not eating, and that's inclusive of sleep time. Sleep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, but um, 
I'm sure. I mean, so that that's the shift over the last uh, ten years. But I'm sure diet and nutrition advice is still going to confuse the hell out of everybody. It will, and it is understandable because, especially when we talk about things not from a weight loss perspective, which is easily to measure and and and, uh, and record. But if we're talking about general health benefits, just on a scientific level, it's actually very difficult to do methodologically, <laughs> and it takes just decades for these uh, pieces of research to have any kind of payoff and. <laughs> In the meantime, there's yep. plenty of uh, space for, for people to confuse and delude and persuade and sell. Still a lot of mice doing the hard yards. <laughs> oh, oh, those mice. <laughs> um, uh, something uh, we touched on a uh, program, uh, you and your good self and, and me, we had a guest on talking about gut health and fecal transplants during the year. And um, that probably isn't something that started 10 years ago. It's something we've really only started hearing more and more about in the last uh, couple of years, right? Correct, yeah, but basically five years. I mean, that 10-year period, however, has still just been massive. There's more research done in the last 10 years on that topic than yeah. most of, you know, yep. like the last 100 years. Um, and it's just one of those funny things in medicine, which sounds like sci-fi, this is not really going to work, to, oh, my God, it actually... There is genuine promise here. So it's influenced um, a little bit of nutrition because it's talking about probiotics and prebiotics. Mm. Um, but it's also linking, you know, people started talking about the gut brain and uh, the gut brain relationship. Correct. Yeah, which has been really helpful. Um, say something like irritable bowel syndrome, which is a condition state, whatever you want to call it, that affects a huge percentage of people. Uh, we've... I suppose in medicine, we've always had a bit of a tough time convincing some of those people that this might be best managed by managing not necessarily the gut, but the anxiety that surrounds it. And uh, and it's very difficult to kind of convince people that oh, the best way to, to fix your gut issues is maybe have treatment for anxiety through talking-based therapies, through psychoeducation, mm-hmm. through medications. Whereas now that we've actually found some solid links, it's much easier to convince people to do that. And, you know, as... as, as treating practitioners we can have a lot of confidence that it's going to make a difference so so that's been fantastic and gut health is now just one of those phrases that's just firmly part of our lexicon both patients and doctors and it's great for me i love fermented food so kimchi and sauerkraut and sour bread and Nice. Good. That, Korean restaurants are doing good. well. <laughs> Korean restaurants are and doing power great. to them out of the uh, out of the gut health dr sharma um You've uh, noted a couple of uh, big medical advances, um, biogenics, immunotherapies, and so on. What's going yeah. on there? So uh, it's something that people don't really know much about by name, but it's been a huge revolution in medicine. So immunotherapy is the treatment of diseases by changing the body's immune response. So they're often called biologics or biological therapies as well. So there's two types. There's activation immunotherapy and then there's suppressive immunotherapy. So activation immunotherapy basically helps your immune system along. And this is really useful for things like cancer. So the body wants to get rid of cancer cells, but it can't because, say, sometimes cancer cells have their own, let's say, defense mechanisms. So uh, yeah, a really succe- successful drug at the moment, uh, nivulumab, or it's got a, got a trade name, Opdivo, uh, for example, that works by altering the proteins on these cancer cells so your body's own T-cells can go ahead and destroy it. And so this is being used for things like uh, melanoma, uh, lung cancer, liver cancer, things with a really bad prognosis. Uh, that we're actually getting really fantastic results. And this is just within the last five years. Uh-huh. Um, and also people with the autoimmune diseases, uh, that's where we use suppressive immunotherapy. So the idea of, of autoimmune diseases is your immune system is being overactive, harming yourself. Here we can, in a very targeted way, settle down, uh, dampen 
the immune system. So things like rheumatoid arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis. It's it's really kind of space age stuff, and it's all been happening taking rapid pace within the last five years and i think it's actually going to govern a lot of how we view and tackle diseases in the next 10 years well you've just reminded me so you've put into medical language what i think i'm um, exposed to in more general language is around things like uh, anti-inflammatory um uh food yes um things that um manage inflammation which isn't just you know conventional swelling with a twisted ankle inflammatories can so happen right level. through on a micro level right throughout the body um and just back to um uh time-restricted eating uh is often talking about one of the benefits is autophagy mm. where um the um where the body will start to consume the worst uh, at least healthy cells um during a period of autophagy where your insulin is low and 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 so on and so forth and it starts to um length keep either lengthen or keep your telomeres a bit longer. Yes. And so that uh, starts to do things regarding inflammation and longevity, as it turns out. Yeah, so so I guess the language around this stuff is correct. And there actually is evidence that this autophagy, etc., can be augmented through intermittent fasting. I guess the, the real question is, does that actually translate into any real benefits in terms of people literally living longer and their illnesses, you know, getting yeah. shorter and milder? That's stuff that is quite hard to prove. And I guess you're always going to find medical professionals, we're going to be pretty cautious before we give, you know, diets, etc., the credit for these things. We have to go to extreme lengths to give medications these credits. There's billions of dollars of research being done into single drugs to see if they make a marginal difference. Not even, you know, a percentage of that is being done with these diets that are widespread. But yes, there is absolutely this kind of, I suppose, this overlap of uh, of uh, philosophy behind all these things that Im- the immune response and inflammation particularly is something that can go overboard and something we, if we control and blunt, there's probably a sweet spot. Um, we're probably fast running out of time to talk about the past. We want to start looking at the future, but just a few more things uh, caught our eye. Um, one of them was the codeine rescheduling um, that happened earlier on in the year. Um, you've noticed a little bit of change. Uh, Absolutely, uh, yeah. So, so codeine, panadine, forte, a lot of people would get scripts for that. That's reduced drastically. It just shows that reducing access doesn't just mean people are going to keep asking for it more. Yeah. It has a real yep. effect. Um, in public policy areas, we've had voluntary assisting, assisted dying uh, legislation come through in Victoria. Um, it seems to have come into the public domain without too much of a backlash, and that, no, that's all pointing in positive not at all. If, if anything, it's one of those things where legislation has been lagging a couple of decades behind public sentiment. So yeah, it's been yep. working out quite well. Um, and over the past ten years, we've had a number of royal commissions um, related to health and medicine, dating back to uh, 2013 when the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse was uh, was launched, and of course. Um, one of the consequences of that commission was to draw attention to trauma and mental health resulting from trauma um, of of children who experienced that. Um, so that finished up in in 2017. There's been uh, a not there's a, a, c- a couple of ongoing commissions at the moment that have started in the last couple of years. One of them, the Royal Commission to Age Care, Quality and Safety, it started a couple of years ago and it'll probably wrap up uh, next year. And uh, with an ageing population, this becomes increasingly relevant to many, many people. 
Uh, the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with a Disability. Um, that started this year and we're, we're, we're not, we haven't had a uh, report um, just yet on that one, a uh, report in progress on that one. Um, we did have a report on the Victorian Royal Commission into Mental Health. We had the interim report just a couple, a couple of, weeks of weeks ago, ago and we spoke about it on the program with Doolittle. Um, and training wheels. And um, we noted that uh, unusual for a Royal Commission um, midterm report was the amount of policy that looks like it'll kick in um, just from the, the, the midterm report, um, let alone what might come of it at the end. So in, in, in essence, that's, um, that's all positive. Uh, but they're horrible, horrible topics. But um, but each in their own way have contributed in a in a positive way to um, public policy and, and practice. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, Dr. Sharma, we're going to spend the last few minutes just talking about the future. And boy, oh boy, we could do a lot of crystal balling around this. Um, everything that we've got on our list in some way kind of refers to technology um, of one sort or another, which I, I think stands to reason, doesn't it? Um, you've got on your mind something in regard to gene, um, yeah, genomes and uh, the likelihood of a few developments there. That's right. So a lot of people would have heard the word CRISPR-Cas9 a few times in the news going, what the hell is that? Um, long story short, you know, when we talk about our genes, we're talking about the set of instructions that govern how everything kind of works in the body. And if you just wrote it down, it'd be about you know, 9,000 kilometres long. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a long, long, long list. Um, we've done a reasonable job of knowing you know, what genes are, uh, are where for, for which purposes. The, sure, there's more and more being discovered. The question is, what do you do with it? So CRISPR-Cas9 is this technology, I guess, we have that you can think of as like a cut-and-paste tool. So we can, in a very targeted way, identify exactly which gene we need to take out, say some that causes uh, a disease, uh, cut it out, and then either the body repairs it or you paste in the part you do want in, and voila. You know, um, we've had ways to do this in the past that have been very inaccurate and very costly, taking a long amount of time. But this type of technology, there seems like there's just a lot of promise for, and I think we're going to hear a lot about it in the next 10 years. So the, the upside um, uh, is that you can look after health issues before they get out of hand? That's right, right? yeah. It's the ultimate form of prevention. Is the downside, is that very same technology, you know, those of us who can be too gloomy about it, a bit sceptical, that we start um, getting, you know, babies by design? Yeah, look, I'm not going to lie. That, uh, that's been on my mind too, and I'm sure we're going to have a lot of science fiction around this uh, yeah. pop in the next few years. Um, but... Look, the, I guess the only comforting thing is this is probably something in terms of application for, for designer babies, probably still a couple, like three or four decades away. So not by the time I'm having kids. So <laughs> it's it's the problem of, of, of people who are not even listening to our program. So there we go. Yeah, not my business. Now, um, people may remember there was a president named Clinton. That guy. And you found a clip of him talking some years ago about this. What's the setup? So he's, I suppose, commemorating the first ever survey, I suppose, of the genome. And it was a, I remember listening, watching this on my TV. It was a pretty historic moment. Let's have a listen. 
We are here to celebrate the completion of the first survey of the entire human genome. Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. The moment we are here to witness was brought about through brilliant and painstaking work of scientists all over the world, including many men and women here today. It was not even 50 years ago that a young Englishman named Crick and a brash, even younger American named Watson first discovered the elegant structure of our genetic code. And you, know, you think about progress in that way, when the DNA was first discovered, to then in the year 2000, um, the, the genome being surveyed, and now it's pretty much you know, kind of 2020, and now we're at the, the, the cutting and pasting stage. So that we're, we're getting a very rapid pace here. As with a couple of things I think we might talk about in a second, um, the, um, whether, whether the legal frameworks can keep up uh, is probably going to be an issue for the for the next 10 years. Well, I think it's just a trend with technology uh, in general. Our technological reach exceeds our grasp of the ethics and the, the norms surrounding it. That's going to be a big challenge. Yep. Um, what, perhaps the last one uh, for the future, and again, a uh, list longer than we've got time to go through, is um, the use of psychedelics in therapeutic care. Really exciting research going on for a lot of psychiatric issues. Uh, research even in Melbourne. So uh, Monash University, as you were saying earlier, recently got funding. Trials going on at St. Vincent's Hospital. We're thinking about things like uh, the use of MDMA in conjunction with psychotherapy for patients with PTSD and also the use of other psychedelics for uh, treating resistant depression. I think the stigma is wearing off there. We're going to have a lot of progress there in the next few years. Yeah, and um, well, the exciting thing is this is in conjunction with uh, you know an ongoing debate about decriminalisation, at least if not legalisation of drugs in general. So even medical marijuana and and, and that kind of thing. Absolutely. So I, I think it's inevitable within the next ten years that these things are going to be quite. Re regularly used if in a for medical purpose and which means I, I think decriminalization is just yeah it's an eventuality within this decade um just one last thing very quickly uh we've got down on our list um antibiotics in general terms what's your crystal ball telling you about um antibiotics in the next 10 years i think if there's any hope for preventing the antibiotic apocalypse it's going to be doctors prescribing less and it's either going to come about through changes in patients attitudes about expectations because i think that's a big driver but also testing to distinguish is the illness viral or is it bacterial? That's the best way we can know if we need antibiotics in the first place. And we can have a rapid, cheap test that's widely available. We could maybe stop the apocalypse. Great, Dr. Sharma. Look, times um, beat us uh, well and truly. A big thank you to the station and a big thank you especially to all our guests through the year and our lovely listeners. We'll see you back in February. Bye for now. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.